0: Welcome to The Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you can be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner.
1: And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening.
0: Last month, the law school, in conjunction with the Booker Spicely Monument Committee and the Durham Energy Foundation, convened the Booker T. Spicely Symposium. During this event, over 125 people gathered to educate the community about the tragic murder of Private Booker Spicely here in Durham, who was killed by a Duke Power Company bus driver when he protested in order to move to the back of the bus, which was a legal requirement for African-Americans who rode buses in Jim Crow, North Carolina and the Jim Crow South. While the symposium focused on the life and death of Booker Spicely, It also examined the tragic racial discriminatory treatment which African-American service members encountered as they sought to secure and guard our freedoms at home and abroad while serving in a branch of the military. Officially for African-Americans, this discriminatory and biased treatment have been titled the Double V Campaign, where these brave enlisted men and women have fought for freedom on foreign soil and been forced to fight for freedom, justice, and equality here in the United States. As the poem goes, this journey to be treated as an equal citizen ain't been no crystal stairway. Serving in the military has been a source of pride and honor by African-Americans historically but the respect and gratitude that they deserve have not been reciprocated by the U.S. government nor appreciated by many of its people. As a result, efforts to secure the basic benefits and rewards for that service has been an ongoing journey. So as we approach another Veterans Day celebration, it is important that we examine this racially tinged history. In an effort by the NCCU School of Law, which is designed to address some of the slights and oversights, the Veterans Law Clinic was created to assist and allow present and former service members to to challenge the maltreatment that they have experienced. That clinic is directed by Professor Stephen Valentine, a former service member and a proud graduate of the law school. Tonight, we will discuss the history and mission of the NCCU Veterans Law Clinic with Professor Valentine, and also talk about some of the activities in which students and professors in that clinic have been involved. So thank you for uh, engaging with us in this discussion, Professor Valentine.
2: Oh, Professor Joyner. First, let me just say uh, thank you to you and uh, Professor Dawson for granting me the privilege and opportunity to be with you again on the Legal Eagle Review as we approach uh, Veterans Day, uh, that celebration uh, annually that we uh, set aside. And so Veterans Day was created uh, as Armistice Day, as you well know, on November eleventh, 1919 which was the first anniversary of the end of uh, World War I. It became a national holiday by act of Congress in 1938. And in 1954, after World War II, Congress uh, amended the act of 1938 by striking out the word armistice and inserting in its place the word veterans. And so on June 1st, 1954, Uh, november 11th became the day that we set aside to honor american veterans of all wars and so it is a distinct honor and privilege to be here on the eve of uh, veterans day to talk about the work of the, the clinic
0: okay and and also we want to uh thank you for your uh service uh as a member of uh the uh of the military and also for being a member of uh, this uh, honorable uh, faculty uh, here. But starting us out with... with... So, Professor Jordan,
2: can I I just make a comment about that? Okay. As a proud alum, uh, prior to coming to law school, I uh, was a Medical Service Corps officer in the United States Army. But as a result of my education here at uh, North Carolina Central University, I got an opportunity to live out my dreams and become a, a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps. And for those who don't know, that that means that I became an Army lawyer. And so I had always aspired to, to make that a part of my my journey. And so I was able to live that out through the education that was provided to me here at North Carolina Central University.
0: Okay. And, and we're so happy that you were able to do all of that. And uh, that takes us then right into the opening question that uh, that I have. Can you kind of provide our audience with Uh, kind of a a history and purpose of the uh, Veterans uh, Law Clinic here at the law school.
2: So thank you for that question, uh, Professor Joyner. Uh, Many would think that North Carolina Central uh, was actually the new kid on the block as it relates to uh, Veterans Law Clinics, but actually North Carolina Central University was the first law school in the state of North Carolina uh, that established a veterans law clinic. And at that time, the clinic was under the directorship of Professor Craig Kabachanek. And in fact, I was uh, one of his uh, his students uh, a number of years ago. Um, However, the programs ceased to exist for a number of years until the former dean of the clinical legal education program, Fred Williams, Work tirelessly with the University of North Carolina School of Law and the state assembly to reestablish the Veterans Law Clinic with a, or at least what I would describe as a generous grant to support the work of advocating for veterans in need of legal assistance um, at both institutions. And so while it would appear that uh, we are new, to this area, we actually were the trailblazers, and uh, as I like to say, they need to put some respect on our name here at North Carolina Central University in that regard.
0: And what what is then the purpose of the uh, the clinic? What is it that you uh, seek to achieve, and the service that uh, that the clinic uh, proposes to provide to uh, to our community?
2: Well, I think a good place to start is right with the the model of North Carolina Central University, which is which is truth and, and service, and so that is our our guiding principle. But I guess a a good place to start, um, really, is to talk about the way that we're we're organized, and so both um, programs, meaning North Carolina. Uh, School of Law and North Carolina Central School of Law work in partnership where we participate in joint trainings and seminars. And so in theory, um, Professor Joyner, you know, the North Carolina uh, School of Law focuses cases or focuses on cases that assist former former service members in upgrading the status of their discharge characterizations before discharge review boards, or boards of correction uh, for military records uh, before the separate military branches of the Department of Defense. And so while it would seem that every um, individual who has served in the military is a veteran, such is not the case. And so in order to be eligible for uh, veterans benefits, you must be a veteran. Under the laws of the United States. And so, under 38 USC 1012, the term veteran actually means a person who served in the active military, naval, or air service, and most recently, um, the Space Force, uh, and who are discharged or released under conditions other than dishonorable. And so, It's true that most service members serve under honorable conditions, but there is a population of service members, meaning people who have worn the uniform for the United States of America that are released from active duty with what uh, scholars have described as bad paper. And when you have bad paper, it bars you or bars one from eligibility or VA benefits. And so those are the types of cases that, in theory, the North Carolina School of Law handles, although both clinics deal deals, uh, with that particular type of case. And so our clinic has quite a number of cases that deal with bad paper. But here at uh, North Carolina Central School of Law, we focus on the, and I'll put this in quotes, the so-called compensation claims, the ones that are for injuries or diseases that are incurred in the line of duty during one's active service. And so we do our work before the Department of Veterans Affairs. And so that would include uh, an original claim, meaning a claim where uh, a veteran has never filed for benefits at all. And we also assist with supplemental claims, which means that a service member could have been denied benefits, uh, but their application for benefits was lacking in some sort of uh, evidentiary um, basis. And so we fill the void with a supplemental claim in order to uh, see that they received compensation benefits. And we also do work before the uh, independent arm of the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is the Board of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And so primarily the work of our clinic is um, with the regional office and the Board of Appeals. And from time to time, our clinic also represents clients before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, which is an Article I court. Created with the passage of the Veterans Judicial Review Act um, in 1988, signed into law by President Ronald Reagan. And so the Veterans Court, as it's known, has exclusive jurisdiction to hear appeals of veterans' claims. And so that is sort of the the scope and the the purpose um, of our work here in uh, the clinic, again, under the rubric of truth and service.
1: of truth and service um, as Professor Joyner or um, our appreciation for the service yes. into this um, university and law school. And I'd like us to share, and, and you've already shared a little bit about the military um, journey. Can you why you were interested in becoming a military lawyer, as you mentioned? and then um, why you decided to come back and serve as a professor here at the law school.
2: Okay, so just uh, thank you for the question and uh, you you were sort of breaking up. So let me see if I can uh, be clear on the question you asked. I think uh, the the question, um, if I heard it correctly was, um, with respect to my military journey, why was it important for me um, to uh, be an army lawyer? And how was it that I arrived back here at uh, North Carolina Central School of Law? So the first issue is oddly enough, I came to the law by way of social work. And so uh, many people don't know that uh, in the army, uh, as a medical service officer, you can actually uh, serve in the capacity as a social worker. And so I worked uh, hand in glove with uh many members in the legal community uh around uh, issues that were of joint in importance and uh it was my influence uh or the influence of those from the judge advocate uh general's corps who i were that i was around um that motivated me to uh, not only apply to law school but to seek a commission in the judge advocate general's corps and so all of the um clinics in the, uh, I was gonna say the triangle, but here in North Carolina, all of the veterans law clinics are actually directed by uh, former members of the military, all of which that that I served with while on active duty. Uh, One in particular, uh, John Brooker, who's the director of the military veterans law clinic over at the University of North Carolina, uh, although uh, a number of years younger than me, Served as a mentor not only into my my entry into the the legal profession uh, as a student, but he also served later on as uh, one of my instructors at the Judge Advocate General uh, Corps Center in School at the University of Virginia, and so um, that was uh, my my foray into uh, the legal profession as an army lawyer, and. I was actually already working as assistant professor in the school of, uh, or department here at uh, North Carolina Central University and social work department. When my phone rang one day and uh, the clinical legal education program director, Fred Williams, asked me what I would be interested in applying for a position that would be uh, opening up potentially. And I told him I definitely would be interested I had been a certified attorney before the Department of Veterans Affairs for a number of years, um, dating back to my time in service, and uh, I was already uh, serving as in a teaching capacity here at the university, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to come back and serve um, the law school that has provided me many of the opportunities um, that I have been afforded. And so it was really uh, a no-brainer. Um, to uh, apply for the position. I was fortunate enough to, to, uh, to receive the appointment and uh, sort of the rest is, is, is history in that regard.
0: Uh, this is the uh, Legal legal Review and we're talking with uh, Professor Stephen Valentine who is a uh, former member of the uh, army and uh JAG officer and also a proud graduate of this uh, law school. And we're talking about the uh, Veterans uh, Law Clinic here at uh, NCCU, its uh, history, mission, and uh, accomplishments uh, over the, uh, the year. This is a, uh, a topic of uh, importance for many of you, uh, particularly as we move toward uh, the celebrations of uh, Veterans Day, uh, which will happen in a, uh, in a couple of weeks. I want you to uh, stay with us, and we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Professor Valentine as soon as we return. So we'll be right back.
3: Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I am a second-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. This week on the Legal Eagle Review, we discuss North Carolina Central School of Law's Veteran Clinic, History and Mission. The Veterans Law Clinic is committed to providing free legal services to low-income veterans who need assistance with discharge upgrades, character of service determinations, VA compensations, and pension claims. The clinic allows students the opportunity to explore the specialized area of the law while making a difference in the lives of those who have served our nation's armed forces. Students are taught veterans' benefit laws, professional responsibility, and mental health law under the tutelage of Professor Stephen Valentine. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review, and this is your weekly announcement. Thank you.
0: Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, Professor Stephen Valentine, who is the uh, director of the NCCU uh, Veterans uh, Law Clinic. Uh, he is a, a former member of the uh, Army and a former uh, JAG officer uh, in the uh, Army and a uh, proud graduate of uh, this law school. And we are so uh, happy uh, and uh, uh, honored uh, to have his uh, service. As as we were talking about uh, the uh, purpose and mission of the uh, Veterans Law Clinic, uh, can you kind of describe uh, some of the ongoing issues presently that uh, uh, past members and present members of the military uh, confront and the kinds of things that... Uh, they uh, seek uh, legal representation for, and I know some of that is outside of the scope of uh, what you do uh, at, the, uh, at the clinic, but for our audience, uh, they, they need to get a kind of a, a holistic view of the kinds of uh, issues that uh, members of the uh, military face. And particularly when you talk about the, uh, uh, those who were honorably discharged as against those who were dishonorably discharged uh, where they have uh, provided service, but aren't eligible for benefits because of their uh, discharge uh, designation. Uh, so I- I'll leave it to you to uh, kind of bring our audience uh, up to date on, 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 on those issues.
2: So thank you for the question, uh, Professor Joyner. Uh, I think that uh, you've identified an area of ongoing concern. Uh, with respect to those who who serve in the uniform um, but are denied access to the entitlements, i.e. veterans' benefits, um, that they're deserving of based on their service to our nation. And so I think disproportionately those who receive um, what I will characterize as other than honorable discharges from the military disproportionately impact uh, African Americans, and so the data points that out. And so, in my substantive course on veterans benefits law here at the university, I often um, I often describe um, the situation with African Americans as serving for an otherwise ungrateful nation, because that is the reality in many instances. For African Americans and other other people of color who serve in in the military, and so discrimination, while uh, one would say um, the Department of Defense and the separate military branches have uh, been ahead of the curve with regards to access to opportunity for African Americans, we still have a long way to go. During the Trump administration. Uh, there were very few African-Americans who um, were elevated to the general ranks within the military uh, across the board. And so in order to be eligible to become a general officer, you must have served as a colonel. And so um, on the one hand, there's not enough uh, full board colonels in the military of uh, color i.e african americans um, and to the extent that there were the president of the united states our commander in chief uh during his four years of service failed to promote any african americans to uh, flagship uh, rank and so discrimination still plays a major part and part of that discrimination plays out in how commanders Uh, decide to administratively discharge uh, service members from the military which is um, within the purview of their authority as a commander they have uh, a lot of discretion in making decisions on the characterizations of uh, one's service in the military and so again the data just shows that uh, African-Americans are dis- disproportionately um, impacted in uh, in that regard. Uh, I think another um, issue as it relates to um, disproportional impact, uh, we were talking about me having served as a, a social worker in the Army. And so the mental health aspects of um, decisions to uh, administratively discharge people from the military, or just that. And so, if you are discharged from the military as a result of something that may have transpired of a mental health nature, the proper course uh, is to have an honorable discharge from the military. But many in- instances, commanders use that as an opportunity to um, punitively uh, impact on the future of um, many um, service members who were released from service. And so not only are they denied the opportunity for compensation benefits, in many instances they're denied educational benefits and they're denied uh, home loan benefits. We know the whole generation, uh, whole World War II generation was was a generation of veterans that were surveyed. And they're the only cohort that said that uh, um their service in the military had an impact on their life across the uh the, across the life cycle um but even in that co- cohort the um, the story of for african americans is quite different it is absolutely quite different uh, we can point to communities all over the country that uh, uh, were developed after world war ii where many um white service members returned home and received quality education. They went on to become presidents of the United States, uh, senators, representatives, uh, governors, and were able to contribute uh, in, just in, their, uh, in their communities um, as a result of their service. And they were able to um, have uh, brand new homes with uh, no money down. They're backed by the, the federal government and so african americans could not avail themselves of those same sort of opportunities and access to gener- generational wealth which uh, owning a health uh, owning a home provides and so when you look at the tra- trajectory of uh, service members d- dating all the way back to the uh, to the revolutionary war the life of the service member of african american descent or, or otherwise is much different than the, their, wealth, their white counterpart. And so it has largely impacted um, generations of uh, African-Americans and other people of color who uh, have served our nation uh, adversely. And so we're still trying to to fix that.
1: Providing us with context is important to make sure that we reflect um, the, the diversity within the society. I wanted to ask you, I know when I went to law school, the clinics were just coming into existence, like mean, military families here in North Carolina. <laughs> Uh, you know young people and students whose parents are in the military um who themselves have been involved in the military can you talk about your students
2: so yes uh my students um well let me talk, talk about the veteran population of students uh here and so um i i would say that most of the veterans who come through the School of Law um, express a level of interest in either the uh, substantive course on veterans benefits law um, that uh, is offered here at the law school, or um, their interest in the clinic. And so I find that most veterans, and there is a a small percentage of my students who are actually um, veterans of the, the armed forces, uh, but a great deal uh, have no experience with the military at all. Um, and it might be true that they have uh, family members, aunts and uncles, um, stepfathers who have served in uh, the military. And so they sort of have a uh, um, a tangential sort of understanding of uh, the life of the service members. So that draws them um, to our clinic, but the work, of the clinic is not driven specifically by uh, veterans. Um, It's it's driven by those who are interested in um, working with this population in order for them to receive the the, the benefits uh, that they are entitled to, and quite frankly, um, that they deserve.
0: You know, a uh, a, a big part of what, uh, of the issues that you uh, confront and those people who come to you for services uh, confront uh, deal with the uh, entitlements and the uh, benefits that are provided to uh, individuals after they have successfully completed uh, service. One question that, that I have, uh, because you talked about a reason resulting in some of the dishonorable discharges Flow from mental health concerns of uh, those individuals who are in the uh, military. Can can you kind of talk about the frequency of the mental health problems that service members face as they are engaged in uh, both military preparation and then also in in battle? Mm -hmm. Uh, what, What percentage of those individuals would end up with uh, mental health uh, issues
2: so that uh that's a very interesting uh uh, question uh professor joiner let me begin by uh, talking about the very unique nature of mental health in the military in contrast with uh, mental health as uh as a civilian so within the department of defense across every uh, military branch commanders actually have the authority to direct uh, service members under their command for mental health services when they believe when they believe subjectively that uh, they need to be seen by someone in uh, mental health and so as a civilian uh, it's mostly self-referral although the, although there are times where, you can go to a court to get an involuntary um, commitment for someone who might be suffering from uh, mental health issues. And so those two dynamics are much different. And so even under emergency situations as a civilian, um, they're given due process, an opportunity to to be heard on the matter. But in the military, um, just by virtue of the commander's authority under the laws, he can direct uh, a service member um, to be seen. And often they use um, that opportunity as a um, a check on their checklist amongst the things that need to occur prior to administratively um, discharging someone out of the military versus um, a true concern with uh, the treatment that might be uh, required. Now, the second part of your question is is, is that is mental health uh, something that you see and something that's common with respect to those who serve in uniform in the planning and uh, preparation for for battle? And so the answer to your question is is yes. And so if you look at uh, the data, you'll see that particularly in uh, the most recent conflicts dating back to uh, World War II, the uh, the frequency of uh, soldiers, Airmen, Marines um, coming back from conflicts with post-traumatic stress disorder and more, most recently traumatic brain injuries um, have increased ex- exponentially. And so it is a very common uh, phenomenon. And so not everyone suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder or other mental health issues, but certainly there is a, a litany of mental health conditions or concerns that are um, caused based to based on individuals being subjected to an abnormal uh, event, and I would consider being in in war and in any type of conflict of that nature to be abnormal. And so they're experiencing very normal reactions to something that's very abnormal, uh, but they seem not to to be able to. Um, um, bounce back or reintegrate to um, their civilian life after having such an experience and so yes it is very very prevalent
0: and and what are some of the uh the benefits and uh, entitlements that uh a person uh, is denied as a result of these uh dishonorable uh discharges or other uh, negative uh, uh determinations made by them uh by the uh Upper upper echelon of the uh, military.
2: So we we talked a little bit uh, earlier about uh, some of the entitlements that one would be denied when they're barred from eligibility for VA benefits uh, because of the other than honorable um, designation. It's it's a scarlet letter, quite frankly. And so like we had mentioned uh, educational benefits, the GI Bill. And, and let me tell you, the GI Bill looks much different than the, the one that uh, I was awarded. Today, you can essentially get your entire education paid for your, your books, stipend, uh, a, a housing allowance. And so that's that's a big deal for those who have served. And so to be, to be denied that um, exponentially decreases your ability to uh, um, have a a suitable income over the uh, the course of your life. Um, you're also denied that the housing benefits, we talked a little bit about that. Um, You've denied readjustment uh, benefits. Uh, you're denied the potential to provide for your family um, after your death. And so is, there's a benefit called the dependency and indemnity compensation and so all of these sorts of of benefits are denied one uh, after they receive that scarlet letter of other than honorable uh, designation and with respect to 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 employment and so if you have a other than honorable discharge you uh, are barred in many instances from federal employment from state employment and sometimes even in private employment if a if a, an employer asks for your DD two fourteen, and so it's very common on applications for uh, those in the industry to want to know whether you have served in the military, because serving the military, one would uh, suggest that you bring certain skills and traits that could be beneficial uh, in the corporate sector. And so, once they see that scarlet letter, they're denied opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise uh, that they would otherwise be able to um, avail themselves to. And so there are large ramifications over the life cycle for those who are denied uh, the opportunity to even seek benefits.
1: Professor Valentine, can you all hear me OK? Sorry, I'll, shade you. I'll let you clean that up. Um, Professor Valentine, can you talk about who qualifies for services with our Veterans Law Clinic, Um, what the services that you provide, that you've outlined for us, uh, so vitally important. Um, Who can take advantage of what you do in the clinic?
2: 95% of the clients we see are low income um, veterans. So they have to meet an income threshold. And quite frankly, most, most of the veterans that we serve do which is why I often say that uh, the benefits that our clients receive are life-changing in many respects. They are life-changing for those who seek them. And so we serve the low-income population. And I also use a level of discretion in uh, types of cases that we take as it relates to the type of case. And so if it's one that's complex, and would be uh one that would be educationally enhancing for the clinic i took I look very closely at those sort of cases because as you know the students in the clinic um are integral in the uh the, the planning and the presentation of of the cases and so i'm I'm thinking about the educational uh sort of the educational value of the cases and also um being able to to help someone who uh, has served our nation in uniform
1: all right you are listening to the legal eagle review here on wncu 90.7 fm and as we anticipate the observance of veterans day on november the 10th of this year we are taking time this hour to talk about the North Carolina Central University School of Law Veterans Law Clinic. And we have as our guest this evening, Professor Stephen Valentine. He is a former service member, former military lawyer or JAG officer. He is a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. And he is the director of our vitally important Veterans Law Clinic. We're gonna have to take a quick break We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
3: Hello, this is Shantae McNeil, and I'm a second year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community announcement. Breast Cancer Awareness Month is here. Did you know African-American women face both disproportionate exposure to breast cancer and the highest risk of serious health impacts from the disease? Younger African-American women in particular are more likely to present with a triple negative subtype of the disease, one that is both more aggressive and associated with higher mortality. Check your breasts monthly and be mindful of the cosmetic products that are often marketed to black women, yet contain some of the most worrisome cancer-causing ingredients, like skin lighteners, hair relaxers, Brazilian blowout treatments, and acrylic nails. This is Shantae McNeil with the Legal Eagle Review, and this is your community announcement. Thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host, Irving Joyner, and I have been talking this hour with Professor Stephen Valentine. He is the director of the NCCU School of Law Veterans Law Clinic, a former service member, former military lawyer, and a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law. We will all be observing Veterans Day in a couple of weeks on November the 10th. And we're taking this time to talk about the vital work that's being done in our Veterans Law Clinic. Professor Valentine, during the last segment, right before we had to break away, you were talking about those that are able to take advantage of the services that you and the students are able to provide those that are in really need of some sound legal advice and support. You mentioned that about 99% of the clients are low income. They vitally need the services and the benefits that, that they have not been able to receive. I have to imagine that you all are not able to serve all of those that are in need of support. Um, you've talked a little bit about how you decide which cases to take. Um, So I guess the first question is, how do individuals find out about the services of the clinic?
2: So our clinic is advertised, obviously, by word of mouth, but also through uh, social media. And we have a, uh, a, a referral source amongst practitioners in uh, this area of law. And so we are constantly um, assessing and evaluating cases throughout the, the semester. Uh, but generally, uh, the assignment of cases don't happen until the, uh, the beginning of each of the uh, semesters, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And so what resources are available for those that are in need of support and legal guidance but aren't able to be taken on by our clinic.
2: Wow, so I wish I could say that uh, the clinic had the capacity to uh, take on more cases. I think you sort of alluded to that. Um, But like I had mentioned, we have a vast uh, clinical network in the area of veterans law. And so there's not a day that goes by that we're not able to tap into that referral source um, either locally or, or nationally in order to ensure that uh, a veteran is given the legal uh, services that they um, need in order to be successful, quite frankly, in this area. And so I think there's a part of this work that's not known. Um, non-lawyers are actually charged with making the adjudication decisions with respect to compensation. And so while they're doing Yemen's work, Uh, A lot of people who adjudicate these cases are not in a position um, to make um, decisions based on complex application of the law to specific facts. And so while a veteran most certainly could handle their case pro se, um, with the increasing complexity... Uh, with the veterans that we're seeing today. Uh in order to be successful in a lot of these claims, you actually need uh some legal advice and guidance.
0: Can you kind of talk about some of the uh, accomplishments that uh, you've been able to rack up uh with the uh the, the 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 clients that you do have and that you have been able to uh to service uh
2: so thank you for the question professor joiner um Before we went live here uh, this evening, we sort of talked about one of the cases before the Court of Appeals for Veterans claims that the clinic is actually uh, handling. And so most recently we received a remand from the court on behalf of one of our World War II clients' uh, dependent spouse. And so the the veteran was denied uh, access to veterans benefits during the course of their life Uh, but the uh, spouse is still alive and continues the fight to earn those benefits that her husband was entitled to um, prior to his death and so um, my client gets an opportunity to uh, have their case uh, heard in the first instance again before the the board of appeals veterans claims that the agency with direction from the court to consider the nature of the cause of of death in this particular uh, instance. And so I think there's a great likelihood that uh, we will prevail um, before the Department of Veterans Affairs.
0: Is is there a statute of limitations uh, as to when a person can uh, bring uh, a claim or when they run out of the uh, opportunity to present it uh, to uh, military officials?
2: Well, that's a that's a, a loaded question and so let me deal with that uh, uh going all the way back to the agency and so finality um judicata, those sort of concepts uh are are loose in the area of, of veterans law quite frankly um i often point out to my students you could take your case all the way to the supreme court of the united states and then the next day, provided you had new and relevant evidence, you could follow a supplemental claim and be right back in the business of negotiating uh, your claim. But for the most part, within the agency, the statute of limitations before a, a decision becomes final is 365 days regarding any action within the agency. And so if, you're, if you get an adverse decision, you have 365 days in order to um, either appeal. Or follow a supplemental claim. And if you appeal, I mean, if you get an adverse decision, you can go do a direct appeal, you have 365 days. So, any action within the agency, you have 365 days. Now, if you want to take your, your case to the Court of Appeals for um, veterans claims, you have 120 days from an adverse decision in order to uh, perfect your appeal. And then another 60 days if you um, file losing the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and you want to go to the Federal Circuit, uh, you have 60 days from an adverse decision in order to get order to, get to uh, the Federal Circuit. And with respect to the, the Supreme Court, as Professor Dawson well knows, uh, you're, you're up to the whims of the court with regards to the writ of certiorari, which is how most cases get to the Supreme Court. And more and more, uh, veterans' uh, cases or veterans' claims are being heard at the Supreme Court. And I tell my students 25 years from now when they're coming back for the 25th uh, anniversary, uh, this area of law will still be in infancy. The court was created in 1988, and so this is still a relatively new uh, area uh, of the law.
1: Uh, Professor Valentine, you mentioned how in selecting cases you look for cases that are also, educationally enhancing, and I know you've talked about the role that the students play. And as you were talking about the the remand um, involving the veteran spouse and how she will have another opportunity to make her claim and and to gather benefits or gain benefits that um, she is entitled to. Mm-hmm. and Can you talk about the value of clinical education for our law students? And so when you have a success like that, like being able to share that with the students, um, the role that students play in that and how that impacts their understanding of the role and importance of lawyers, um, kind of generally speaking in our society and, and specifically within Uh, the veterans law space, especially, as you noted, which is still in its infancy?
2: So I think I had mentioned that the the veterans law clinic here uh, at the law school is one of uh, three in the state of North Carolina. So we play a a critical role in educating future veterans law attorneys uh, in this area of Administrative law. I don't know if you've been uh, paying attention, but there's a major administrative law uh, principle that's uh, going to be heard in the next session of the Supreme Court dealing with Chevron deference. And so while Chevron deference and the case with respect to Chevron is not a uh, veterans law case, it has large and sweeping implications um, for uh, veterans law. And so that's just one uh instance where I'm able to um share with the students that uh, this particular moment in the in the history of not only administrative law, but the veterans law is one where um the court could shape the, the next 25-30 years in how um this area of the law is practiced. Um and what was the, the second part of the question? I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, so um this. Can you talk about the the impact that the students have in providing support and and legal advice through you as the supervising attorney, especially when they see these successes, like the one you mentioned of the military spouse having her case remanded, so she has another opportunity.
2: So the the uh, the students are usually overjoyed. I mean, I mean, I can remem- remember being in law school and be uh, participating. Um, and feeling like I was really uh, making a difference in uh, someone's life. And so, I mean, that's the case uh, now. And so when you put the planning in, uh, the, uh, the uh, preparation in, and you get opportunities on, on some occasions to do the presentation of the case before the agency, as second and third year certified uh, law students, um, you can only imagine um, how the students feel and the confidence that's gained uh, moving forward, uh, past these hollow halls, and actually um, um, adding to the uh, the veterans' law uh, bar. So, yes, mm-hmm. students are usually very, very excited. As a matter of fact, one of my students came uh, saw me walking in Parkland this morning. It was like, Professor Valentine, we got to get a cake and celebrate that court of appeals for veterans' claims joint remand. And so, I got a kick out of that. But yes, it's very exciting.
0: It's very exciting for the students. How how knowledgeable uh, are people about uh, the the procedure and the availability of appeals uh, going up uh, to uh, contest denials of uh, benefits? And clearly, people aren't that concerned when they obtain those benefits. But, uh, you know, when they are denied uh, those, particularly in death cases uh, where there is a uh, a spouse left behind, uh, who might uh, not be aware. So, what what is that level of uh, of knowledge in the in the general public?
2: Um, I think there's a lack of knowledge in that regard. Uh, I get a lot of referrals with regards to, to the, the specific entitlement to dependency and indemnity, which is essentially a death pension. Um, like spouses talk amongst themselves, and so I get a lot of referrals that way. I've had quite a few clients who have said that, uh, oh, I've talked to a friend of mine and they called your office and can you help me? And so um, it's not that they uh, don't have uh, access to the information because each one of the decisions that are made uh, with regards to a claim lays out all of the information with regards to your appeal rights, um, your right to uh, file a claim before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, but quite frankly I don't think that uh, it's generally known unless you're diligent enough to actually read through these decisions, which in um, well, many instances include 12, 13 pages of uh, uh, of written uh, work product. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: So Professor Valentine, we've had an opportunity to learn about the history of the clinic and you've educated us on some of the, the specific claims. We have just a minute left. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we close out?
2: Sure. Um, I'd like to highlight uh, some more of our uh, sort of accomplishments um, or successes here in the clinic. We've worked with uh, World War II uh, veteran, like I mentioned, we've also had opportunity to work with a Korean War veteran who had been uh, working for fifty years to increase his benefits, and so we got him up to eighty uh, percent service connection. And I mean, he often calls me and reminds me how life changing how life changing that has been uh, for him. And he um, commented that the uh, the work that you do cannot be reduced. Uh, what work you do for veterans can't be reduced to to this note, but I want to thank you for the work that you do uh, on behalf of veterans. And so we worked with Vietnam veterans, most recently a Vietnam veteran who was suffering from cancer. Uh, Many people are not familiar with the the Pact Act, which was passed last year. It made certain forms of cancer presumptive in nature. And so we got that service service connection for that particular veteran uh, because of his exposure um, to Agent Orange, related to his his specific condition which is now recognized by by va we've worked with gulf war veterans and most recently our veterans from afghanistan and uh, iraq suffering from post traumatic stress disorder and uh, traumatic brain injury as i mentioned Um, professor joiner also noted that the the clinic was a recipient of a hundred thousand dollar grant from the duke energy foundation Uh, We want to thank him. He was an instrumental part in in securing those funds on behalf of the clinic. Uh, We've had about six thousand dollars in contributions or donations to the clinical legal legal education program, specifically related to the work that uh, we are doing here. And so I think there are um, definitely some some matrix out there that say or suggest that we're doing good work here. And I plan to continue that uh, into the future.
1: Well, thank you for, again, your your service to the country, to the university, the law school, and being the director of the Vitally Important Veterans Law Clinic. We, unfortunately, are out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Professor Stephen Valentine. He is a former service member, former military lawyer or JAG officer. He's a proud graduate of NCCU School of Law, and he is the director of our Veterans Law Clinic. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and you will spread this information to your family and friends. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, You can find us on the Legal Eagle Review Podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.